What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the next episode of TMT Time. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein of the TMT Group here at Arnold Porter. I'm super excited today to have a very special guest who happens to be one of my favorite people at our firm. Her name is Jamie Vibbert. She is the privacy guru at our firm, and she joins us today wearing an awesome bright pink wig that none of you can see, but I can. So, Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Evan. Nice to be here. I, I'm also wearing a wig for those at home that can't see us, but you know, we're trying to put some fun here into the TMT podcast, and I knew Jamie would, would be totally on board with that. It's purple. Evan's wig is purple. I just want everybody to know. Thanks, Jamie. All right. Well, we're going to talk about privacy. It's all I hear about all the time. Privacy, privacy, privacy. I don't really know why. Jamie, tell me why I can't escape privacy. Because I'm so amazing. No, really, the for a long, long time in the United States and really elsewhere, all people really thought about were data breaches, right? They didn't want to lose information that people could use to commit identity theft. And so the definition of personal information you know, even five or six years ago was pretty narrow. It was things like your driver's license number and your credit card number and your social security number, but it really wasn't outside of that. And then kind of two things happened. Number one, uh, we learned as a, as a world how to do more stuff with data, right? So artificial intelligence and facial recognition and all of the stuff that happens with social media and advertising got really good. And, you know, all of these things happened and then it started to get, um, we started to figure out that some of those uses of data weren't great. And there were large scandals that I don't even have to mention, but I'm sure that you know of, and people started to realize that like, it's not just about this information that might be used to steal my identity. It's really all of this information that is being used in ways that I think people didn't understand and now they are starting to understand. And in the United States, this really happened when Alistair McTaggart, who's um, a bazillionaire who lives in California, decided that he was mad at social media, really, um, and proposed what was the predecessor to the California Consumer Privacy Act. And it was really targeted at these other uses of data that people previously didn't really know or think about. Um, so that's kind of number one. And there are documentaries about privacy and there are, you know, it's, it is in our face all the time. So that happened in the United States. The other thing that- What about that thing, Jamie, remember that website who will remain nameless when it was like the cheat on your spouse website? Yes. And everybody got all the information and all the unfaithful spouses were like, oh my God, everyone knows. Was that, is that like a data privacy breach? Is that what you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking about. And it's things like, you know, there's a documentary out there where a bunch of the individuals who were in on the ground floor at some of these social media um, platforms who don't let their kids use the social media platform because of the real kind of physical and mental harms that happen through 
the kinds of information that are being that's being provided to people and how that information is being um, used. And, you know, then there are also the things like cyberbullying. So really it's, we have a lot more access to online ways to do all of the good and bad stuff that we were doing before, but it wasn't captured electronically. And companies are using that data to make money. Um, and the, and the long-term consequences of that really, it's, it's almost like a, it's almost like a new, new vaccine, right? The long-term consequences of using data in those ways is just now being understood um, by people as a whole. So, you know, it, it just has become part of the, the consciousness of the, of the world. Um, and it wasn't before, certainly not the way yeah, that so it is now. I got my kids, obviously, now that you're mentioning this on, not on social media, but even for to do anything now, you have to sign up with an email address. And my wife and I have had to create fictitious email addresses because we're worried about, we're worried about cyberbullying, obviously, but worried about like data collection on our kids and that they're going to have this like treasure trove of data and they're real young. That's just going to follow them going forward. Yep. It's, and so basically anybody who's a parent is thinking about these kinds of things because you have to. And, you know, if you think about video games, right, where there are servers that connect people and a lot of the players are kids, right? And so there's a lot of information and communication that's happening in the context of those video games, right? And what's happening with that data and are companies using it and is it safe and all of those things. It's just, there's not that much that we do on a day-to-day basis where there is a significant amount of data use that's impacting the result of what's happening. So it's, it's a top of mind. Um, so someone's collecting data about this podcast and they're going to blackmail us because we're wearing wigs. That's what's going to happen. Right. Well, I think it's okay. <laughs> All right, so t- t- tell our listeners about like some of the regulations or laws that are, are new or that have come up to deal with these types of things that you've just mentioned. So kind of, you know, I think everybody or most people kind of have heard about the general data protection regulation, which is this broad uh, privacy law that exists in the EU is what I'll say, although it's, it's actually the EEA, but it exists in the EU and it covers all kinds of data in, in addition to kind of governing how data is processed and used. It also has pretty um, significant restrictions on how data is transferred around the world outside of the EEA. And so following the GDPR's enactment in 2018, and you know, I won't get into the back and forth on the adequacy of transfers to the United States under, you know, kind of some of the more recent case law that com- that's coming out of the out of the EU. But the bottom line is uh, countries who want to receive what's called an adequacy decision under the GDPR, meaning that data can flow freely from the EU into that country. So countries that are trying to get this adequacy decision are implementing laws that are basically GDPR copycats. And so all of these countries started to enact laws. And it's why you have the Brazilian law that looks almost exactly like the 
GDPR. It's called the LGPD. It looks almost exactly like the GDPR, except for they've changed out GDPR for LGPD and, you know, EU for Brazil, right? So the reason that Brazil enacted a law like that was to try to get an adequacy decision from the EU so that data can flow freely between those, the countries in the EU and Brazil. And so that one was enacted. There's a, there's a very similar law in South Africa that was enacted. There is a draft law in China that's, it's a GDPR copycat law. And in the United States, I already mentioned earlier, the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, which was not enacted to try to get an adequacy decision, but was enacted in order to um, make uh, this bazillionaire feel good about himself, um, really, is, is what happened there. But um, so there are the kind of set of laws that were enacted to try to, to try to get this adequacy decision. And then in the United States, um, the California law happened. There's a law that was just enacted in Virginia called the Virginia Consumer Data Protection Act. And there are a dozen other state laws bubbling up, including one in Florida that's that's particularly concerning because of the broad scope of a private right of action that it contains. And so, so is there no federal law on this? You keep dancing around this. It looks, it sounds like it's like state by state, but you mentioned other countries, but it doesn't sound like the U S has one. No. And you know, I still put it, I don't know, in the 40% range, they have talked about a federal privacy law a lot, but they have never been able to get one through Congress for two reasons, really. One, nobody can agree on whether there should be a private right of action. And number two, nobody can agree on whether the federal law should preempt the state laws. And obviously, on the one side, you have the consumer protection advocates, right, who want the, the strictest protection for people. And on the other hand, you have businesses who say, well, why do we want a federal law if it's not going to actually help us comply with all of these state laws? Um, and so I think it gets I think it gets pretty difficult to um, to push a federal law through. But but maybe if we have 50 of them, something will happen. I'll note that we have 50. We have more than 50 because all of the territories have them, too. We have more than 50 breach notification laws in the United States and its territories. And there's no federal breach notification law either. So, and that one you would think would be easier because it doesn't face some of these challenges. Um, so yeah, so there are tons, there are tons of laws and they are uh, pretty similar, I would say across the board. Um, and they have, they have some kind of standard privacy tenants. Um, these are things like transparency, right? You're supposed to tell people what you're doing with their data. These are much, much- I like the click-throughs that I see, like we've just updated our privacy policies. Click here and give us everything. Yeah. Is that what that is? Yeah, and no, nobody, including me, by the way, reads them. I do have- No, I'm like, get off my screen. I want to read what's behind you. <laughs> Come on. I do have a-, a uh, I was using an app. I have an, a privacy professional's anecdote. I never read them. And I was using an app and the app has a payment function and has a communication function. And I hired somebody through the app and I uh, paid them through the app. 
but I forgot to give this person a tip and I'm a super generous person. So, so I communicated with her via the app and I said, Hey, do you have Venmo? I'd like to give you a tip. And I immediately, literally immediately got an email to my email box. It says, Hey, don't forget you have to use our payment function. So I was made aware very, <laughs> very quickly that that means that this app was reading my communications with this person that I had hired. And I didn't like that. Okay. So I thought you were going to say you got canceled for not tipping, but that's freaky. So it was your, the app was reading your email saying, if you're going to give this person a tip, make sure you use our app for it. Yeah. Cause I'm sure that what it, what it, what it picked up, what the AI picked up on when it's reading these communications, it picked up on the word Venmo or tip or pay or something, right. Or some combination of those words and, and automatically sent out the email to shake the finger at me that I wasn't using the app in accordance with the terms of, of service. And for those listeners at home, uh, I'd like to note for the record that Jamie was just shaking her finger at the microphone <laughs> and she's doing it again. All right. Wait a minute. So you're not advising people like me who are just asking to get that privacy warning off my screen. How, how do you advise clients in this area then if there's no you know, real uniformity at the federal level and it's state by state? How do you help clients navigate what sounds to me like a quagmire of you know, odd privacy law? It's hard, but what I would suggest, so there are kind of two approaches that I've seen and I favor one. The one approach is to read the letter of the law and try to do everything in accordance with that particular law for the individuals that are subject to that particular law um, and to strictly comply both you know, with the, with the provisions of that law. And then the other approach is to find a reasonable lowest common denominator, um, for all of these different kind of privacy principles and understand that there's some risk in that because you may not be strictly complying, but to go ahead and do it that way anyway. So these are things like if you have a lot of different products and services and you are used to providing privacy notices that are kind of specific to a product or service that's really and specific to a jurisdiction that's really difficult to implement and to maintain and these laws are coming up so quickly and changing so rapidly that to try to apply changes to 150 different privacy notices is basically impossible so take take a, an approach where you are giving as much information as you can, even if it's higher level, because it's much easier to comply <laughs> with a global suite of requirements if you're only trying to implement a couple of different things. So that's the, that's the kind of bottom line there. And what I'll say is if you, if you haven't started or you know that you have, um, you know that you have some work to do. What I'm gonna say is, you know, there are enforcers out there. There are private rights of action so that the plaintiff's bar can come after you. Kind of two things that you should do first. Number one, you should make sure that all of your publicly facing statements 
are accurate and that they you know align with all of the suite of laws that lowest common denominator approach because people are looking right and number two and this is like way easier said than done don't have a breach because the way that the privacy enforcers work and the way that the litigants work is that the reason that they figure out that your privacy or security practices might not be great is by um seeing that you've had a breach understanding that you've notified people that you've had a breach and then they have a a way to come in and look more broadly at um at all of the privacy and security practices so so when do you get hired which of those that you just those two you just mentioned so after the breach before the breach lowest common denominator when when do clients or should clients i guess turn to you so I think, well, any of those times, but it's better. It's more efficient for you. It's less expensive. If you, if you set up your program properly at the beginning, and if you do that, so you have kind of the right internal and external policies, procedures, notices, you have a mechanism for compliance with some of the privacy requirements, like People have rights to access and delete their data um, so that you have mechanisms for doing that. And if you take some relatively simple steps on the security side of the house, you're going to make yourself a much less attractive that I can tell you about, right? But it makes you a much less attractive target to these attackers who, by the way, are also using AI. And so if you just make, if you just make it harder to get into your organization, it's going to skip over you and go to your competitor. So if I come in and I help you get set up and document decisions as to why maybe, you know, you are partially complying with a given requirement, then if anything does happen and the plaintiff's bar comes in or an enforcer comes in, you can say, yes, we realize, but look, we put all this effort into this. And that's really particularly on the side of the enforcers, that's really all they care about. They just want you to think about it and you should show your work about thinking about it. How do you show, that's a good, so I, I'm obviously do a lot of litigation. So I think to myself, what's privileged and what's not, how do you show what you've done? I, that's not attorney work product. Is it, is it a program that you're putting in place sort of with the business? So both, so there's non-attorney client privilege documents like, you know, your policies and procedures and your guidelines on how to respond to an individual rights request and all of, you know, your incident response plan and those things, not privileged, your decisions. So let's just say, as an example, let's say that um, you decide that you don't have to delete a certain category of individuals data because it's subject to some exception in the law. Um, but it's like, you know, it's not hundred percent clear. I mean, I, just to kind of set the stage here, I don't think a lot of people understand that privacy is a risk-based regime, right? Like there, it does not tell you how to do everything. There's a lot of flexibility. So, so let's just say that you decide that you don't have to delete this category of data for this category of data subjects you should write it down and it would be privileged, right? Because you have your outside counsel, me, you have somebody come in and tell you, we think that this is a reasonable approach and it would be privileged, but obviously the holder of the privilege is that client. And if it would be helpful to them to show 
to, like I said, particularly a regulator. If it would be helpful to them, then they can disclose it at that time. And if it wouldn't be helpful, then it's subject to the privilege and they don't have to. All right. We don't have much time left and I've got you here and you're wearing a pink wig. So I want to do some rapid fire questions. The first of which, what is the worst situation that you've seen data breach wise, privacy wise? I don't want any client names because then we have to censor it all. I want facts. What's happened? What have you seen? Horror stories that you don't want to see for happen for your clients. So on the privacy side of the house, I would say that the, the kind of the one horror that I've, that I've seen recently, and this just aligns with everything else, which is just don't be dumb about data. If you are doing something that makes you, that you wouldn't want done to your kid, then don't do it because the FTC will come in and shut you down and they will rely on their section five authority. And it doesn't even matter if it's not strictly not in compliance. And the situation that I'm thinking about is where a joint venture was happening between our client and another party. And the other party had some really crazy ideas about how to sell data. And when you say sell data, like people, including the FTC and otherwise get really upset on how to sell data. And the plan, even though it was, it was, could be done in a legally compliant way, the way that they were going to push it through to customers um, and users was to basically hide it in those terms and conditions and in the privacy notice. And, um, if, if, if that kind of data sale happens and the FTC finds out about it, <laughs> they are going to shut it down. It is, it is um, kind of what I would call like a semi-unethical use of data, particularly because they know that and that's why they want to hide, they want to hide it in boilerplate terms and conditions. So that's on the privacy side. On the security side, and there's a lot and lot of things that can go wrong on the security side. And what I would say in terms of incident response and where I see this go wrong most often is that um, things are moving so quickly that people, and this is like the opposite of what I tell you to do in privacy, in security, following an incident, you shouldn't write anything down <laughs> because People are moving very quickly. Am I, I going to have to strike that from the podcast here, Gammy? Is that is that inside 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 info? Don't write anything down. Well, you don't have to strike it from the podcast. I don't think that's inside info. I think it's uh, common sense, and I'm going to give you an example. Um, you know, a CISO was evaluating an incident and whether there were notification obligations. And one of the elements of data that may have been accessed or acquired was a nine digit number that was not a social security number. And to be helpful, he <laughs> told the, the board of this company, hey, I mean, it, maybe it had social security numbers in it. If somebody put their social security number in instead of this other number, because it was the same number of digits, and then I had to explain that 
um, and to, to get the FTC to leave this particular client alone. And I was just, you know, <laughs> uh, there was not a there there, but it's hard to tell that when you are looking in hindsight at something from the CISO that says, maybe there's those security numbers in there. So don't, don't be helpful CISOs. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Now hire Jamie before these things happen. That's basically what I'm taking away from this. All right. I got a couple more, couple minutes. You went to Tulane. We're coming out of the pandemic. What restaurant should people go to in New Orleans first? Ooh. Um, well, when I lived in New Orleans, I worked at Bayona. So I think I would be, um, you know, not a good former employee if I didn't tell you to go to Bayona, which is in the French Quarter. And if you go during lunch, they have this duck and cashew butter sandwich that's awesome. Um, and if you're looking for a brunch spot, oh man, I just I now now I'm nervous that these restaurants might not be there. Um, oh, that's a good point. Oh, oh, that's fair. That's sad. That's horribly sad. Go out and eat. Go out to restaurants if you're vaccinated, people. Yeah, go out to eat. Um, Herb Saint is really good. There's a there's a butcher called the Koshan Butchery. So anyway, just eat all of the food. Go to New Orleans and eat I, all of the food. Yeah. All right. Well, one last question. Now that I mentioned the pandemic, does the more remote or dispersed workforce have an impact on the privacy discussion that we've been having? I mean, kind of. Um, really how it impacts it, it well there are two things on the privacy side right on the privacy side of the house employers are trying to collect a lot more health data in order to make the workplace safe so there's more data that's happening in the pan post in the pandemic world particularly in the hands of employers than there was before so definitely impacted and there's lots and lots and lots of guidance and FAQs and stuff out there about how to handle that information. On the security side of the house, it's harder for companies to make their systems secure when everybody's sitting at their house on who knows what kind of Wi-Fi and, um, you know, dispersed uh, across wherever the geographies of their people are. So it does make it harder to keep data safe. I like how you did that there. You kind of teased our next podcast, which is what I'm going to encourage listeners to tune into the next time. I'm getting Jamie on here again. We're going to talk about health and personal data, which is what she just teased. It was nice work, Jamie, and it was not purposeful. Uh, but thank you for joining us today, Jamie. Uh, you can sign off, say goodbye to our listeners, leave them with any last nugget of information you want. It was, it was a pleasure to be here in my pink wig. I would say the la the only thing that you should really know is that you shouldn't hide from the fact that there are a bunch of different requirements. You should just take a reasonable approach to privacy compliance and it can be scalable and flexible and not supremely expensive if you do it that way. Awesome. Thanks, Jamie. We'll talk to you soon.